Good evening. I believe in freedom of choice. I've always believed in freedom of choice. And I have to say, for months, I've been sitting here warning you that what's going on across much of the Western world, much of the rest of the world too, is people are being divided up into the jabbed and the jab knots. And a level of discrimination is being displayed against those who choose not to get vaccinated that is unacceptable. In places like Western Australia, the unvaccinated are virtually now living under house arrest. But it's been happening here too with the mandate, the vaccine mandate. First it came in the care sector. It's finished up with between 30 and 40,000 people leaving the care sector, a sector that was already struggling and short of people. And now we're making up numbers, bringing people in from all over the world who do not have, in many cases, the right level of qualifications and whose police records it's difficult for us to check. I don't want the same thing to happen to the National Health Service. And there is now a campaign. 100,000 people who work for the NHS, if they've not been fully vaccinated by the 1st of April, will lose their jobs. It is absolute madness in a service where we have 6 million people still waiting for operations and procedures, and that number rising every single week. Well, something changed, something quite big changed, not that long ago, and it happened at King's in London. And it was Sajid Javid going around one of the wards, asking people what they thought about the government's vaccine mandate. Here's what happened. What do you, what do you think of the, the new rule to require vaccination of all NHS staff? I'm, I'm not happy about that. So. You're not happy about it, tell me. Yeah. So I've had COVID at some point. Yeah. Uh, I've got antibodies. Yeah. Um, I've been working on COVID ITU since the beginning. I have not had a vaccination. I do not want to have a vaccination. Um, uh, the vaccine's reducing transmission only for about eight weeks with Delta. With Omicron, it's probably less. And for that, I would be dismissed if I don't have a vaccine. It's not, the science isn't strong enough. That's your view. And, and, and your views? Well, a somewhat stunned-looking Sashi Javid there. But something very important happened in that moment. We began to have a debate. Well, the man in that interview was Dr Steve James, a critical care consultant at King's. And he joins me this evening. Steve, good evening and welcome to the show. Evening, now, actually, what you did was to get a lot of people talking online um, about what your reasons were. Um, and you're now about to spearhead a legal challenge. You are the lead claimant. There are eight of you, all medical professionals. And you're pushing for a judicial review, and we'll come in a moment to, to the legal arguments of that. But just for me, reiterate why you're reluctant. Because last night we had Dr David Nicholl um, on the programme basically saying there's 100,000 of you work for the NHS and you're all cranks. So tell me why you're reluctant to have the vaccine. In the last four weeks, the UK government's data shows that if you're vaccinated, you're more likely to have had COVID-19 than if you're unvaccinated. So there isn't a scientific argument to say I would have been better off reducing infection or transmission by being vaccinated. That's just the starting point for now. There is an argument that says, and one that is argued very passionately by doctors that come on this programme and other programmes here at GB News, that if you have had the vaccine and you catch COVID, you're much less likely to get ill. 
Yes, so we think that, in, especially in the age group that's having the most problems, that the vaccine still reduces the serious consequences. But that's not the argument being made for why staff should have the vaccine. The argument there is that it's going to reduce transmission and infection rates. It doesn't do that. Yeah, I, and, and this actually is why I've been very reluctant. You know, I, I've had uh, texts, phone calls, letters telling me I've got to get the booster. Um, and I would get the booster. I'd, be, I'd happily go and get the booster if, if I thought by getting it, I couldn't catch or spread the Omicron variant or whatever it may be. Steve, you obviously feel very, very strongly about this. Are you really seriously prepared to give up a career that you train for and work for on this point? Yes, because as I think I've said before, for me, it's not about just going to work. It's about my own values and, and sticking with those and not being pushed down or told what to do by other people when it doesn't fit with my values. And how much pressure are you coming under from management? I'm not coming under pressure from my own management. So my own management has been... Uh, you know, very easy with it. They've understood the situation. I've not had pressure. Um, but I also know how to respond uh, if there is pressure. So I yes, I, say, think the, I think the health secretary discovered that when he, when he ran into you and the look on his face was absolutely priceless. So, Steve James, tell me, what are you doing? Um, right now, we're working together with Stephen Jackson to yep. put together... Stephen Jackson, the lead solicitor at Jackson Osborne, and, and we'll come in a moment to the legal arguments. Just explain what you're about to try and do. We want to challenge the government to say that the laws they've made to put these, this mandate into place is not reasonable. It's not rational based on the science, and it's inappropriate uh, for the current situation. Very, very interesting indeed, and something for the government to think about. Stephen Jackson... Please explain to the GB News audience, to all of us, what is judicial review? What does it mean? Well, I must say, I think Steve's almost explained it in a nutshell there already. What it's about is letting the government govern. The government manage the country on the instructions from the electorate. The courts don't interfere with that. As long as the government's doing, acting within the powers given them by the people, then that's fine, they stay out of it. And if someone comes along in a busybody fashion to say, well, I think you've made the wrong decision, the court says, well, hold on a moment. We're not the managers. We don't interfere unless, and this is the judicial review, unless you can show that the government's decision was outside its powers or was irrational or unreasonable, perhaps because they took into account the wrong information, or didn't take into account information they should have done. So they didn't uh, inquire properly into what the evidence was. And so that's the ju judicial review process. It's simply yeah. saying what the government did was irrational or unreasonable. And so you quote back at them their own legislation, I presume? Uh, yes, absolutely. We say, well, there's a couple of points. The legislation we say in the first place, it's being made under a 2008 Act, at which time Parliament had no, no contemplation whatsoever of vaccinating people man with a mandate. It was not simply contemplated under that act. So we say, this isn't appropriate. That's point one. So just get rid. No, no discussion needed. After that, it's a question of, well, actually, look at what you're doing. Will it actually achieve the purpose which you say it's supposed to do? And the purpose is to stop or prevent or reduce the spread of coronavirus yeah. and, and illness in the yeah. population. But, as Steve's alluded to already, when these vaccines are being shown not to prevent transmission not to reduce it to any significant extent and perhaps even to increase the spread, then they simply won't achieve their purpose. Gosh, I can imagine there are members of the government watching this now horrified that we're even having an open, proper democratic debate. But that's exactly what we are doing. Time is short, isn't it? 
Oh, I'm yes. Short. So how quickly will this process begin? Well, the courts are keen on procedure, rightly so. We don't rush into decisions. Um, but 1st of April is the deadline when it seems people will lose their employment. So we'll be asking the court to deal with this ahead of the 1st of April. Yeah. And in your view, and I know that lawyers always give optimistic views, yes. but in your view, can this be one? Yes, it can be one. Um, I think... That there are already indications from the government that you know, talking about pausing it. There's been, you know, the Secretary of State has already said, he's admitted, vaccines, they simply don't work, not at least reduce hospitalisation. That's his own words. Professor Christopher Whitty said, even in December, well before these were actually signed off, he actually told Parliament to the MPs through a lunchtime conversation, actually these vaccines have minimal effect on reducing on transmission. So... With that in mind, I think the government's already alert, and we know they're alert, to the, to the challenge which, which is rising in the court. Well, thank you, both of you, for coming here on GB News, giving us a broadcast exclusive on this. Uh, your life's going to be very different, Steve, over the next weeks and months. You realise that, don't you? I, I do, yeah. Um, prepared to see what comes. Um, lots of interesting possibilities. Um, so, we'll see. Steve James, now very much a public figure. You'll be seeing an awful lot more of him. Gentlemen, thank you very much indeed. As I said earlier, we always give both sides of the argument here at GB News. We want to have a proper open debate. And what you heard tonight was the complete opposite of what was being argued last night. I have to say, for my money, uh, I, I've not been convinced uh, that I should have the booster because of this absolute point about spread. About spread, about catching and about spread. And I really want this campaign to succeed. It is about freedom of choice. It is a fundamentally important point in a society. If we start to discriminate against large groups of people on the basis of their medical choices, uh, that, I think, would be an outrage. And something else. I sense a change of mood. I really, really do. The government were very good at terrifying all of us, but I now think we're beginning to think for ourselves. We're beginning to work out what is reasonable and what is not. And I think this campaign on the NHS is winnable. Well, somebody else at GB News that feels very strongly about this and has been pushing this issue and giving us her opinion very strongly on it is, of course, Michelle Dubry, GB News presenter, and she's launched her Outdate the Mandate campaign. Did, yes. Michelle, why do you feel so strongly about this? Look, I just feel like we've almost... I, I sometimes press pause and think, what on earth has happened to us as a collective society? We've, we're losing our minds now... I'm very, very pro-choice, very, very anti-coercion when it comes to most things, especially when it comes to what you do or don't have injected into your body. Um, you know, the, the picture is kind of life has moved on now, Nigel. Uh, Omicron is much less serious. Most people, especially the vulnerable people, are uh, triple vaccinated. They're protecting themselves against serious harm. And what we've done for a couple of years now is laser focus in on what I'm calling COVID Island. The only thing that matters is COVID. And when we think about the healthcare in this, in this country, yes, COVID is very important. And yes, people are at risk of COVID. But if you lose tens of thousands of healthcare workers, Nigel, uh -huh. yes, you might mitigate a little bit of risk, some might argue, because of COVID. But there's a whole sea of other ailments and illnesses and diseases uh, around COVID Island that you will have a direct impact on. You will cost lives if people cannot access care because of staff shortages, yeah. because they've been kicked out because of this COVID uh, situation. How will the NHS recover from that? And 
I've been asking my viewers, Nigel, to get in touch with me and share yeah. their experiences. It's, They've yeah. been doing it in their droves. This affects such a cross-section of people. It's doctors, it's nurses, uh, people in dentistry. I, I've just been speaking to someone who works in a prison, in medical uh, prison. It's students. So it's not just about today's staff. It's about the pipeline of future staff. And there are many different ways to mitigate, mitigate risk. You've got all of your PPEs and your masks. And as I'm saying, the most vulnerable people are uh, triple vaccinated. And COVID is not the only threat no, facing I, us or our health care system. Michelle, I mean, we've, we've, we've kicked into the long grass, diabetes screening, cancer diagnosis. I mean, I'm sure at the end of all of this, uh, we'll say that more people will die prematurely from things other than COVID because of the total focus on it. So I'm with you on that completely. Now, look, outdate the mandate. What, you know, if people want to get involved in this, tell me what or tell them. Yeah, so what, what we're trying do. to do is I think everybody uh, right now needs to come together and try and put uh, uh, pressure on this government to try and get rid of this mandate. All this talk about delaying it, Nigel, you know, that's completely unacceptable. People have got mental health issues that work in these uh, sectors now because they're not sure if they're coming or going or if they have a job. So I'm asking viewers, uh, get in touch with me, outdate the mandate at gbnews.uk. Tell me your stories. We're sharing them online. We're sharing them on my program. Uh, get onto Twitter, hashtag outdate the mandate. Put pressure on this government. Uh, make them uh, understand that this is not acceptable. There is more than just a risk of COVID that faces our healthcare. And we cannot decimate the staffing levels in the NHS purely because of the risk of this one situation. It's bonkers. Said with great passion. Thank well, you. Michelle Jubry, outdate the mandate. Get involved. Go to the GB News website. Let's get in touch with our members of parliament. Let's contact the government directly. I think we can win this. I genuinely, genuinely do. Coming up in a moment, Liz Truss takes a £500,000 jet journey to Australia. You really couldn't make some of this stuff up, could you? Should the NHS mandate be scrapped? Farage at gbnews.uk and your opinions are coming in thick and fast. Deirdre says it should not matter if you are vaccinated or not. If you have a flow test that shows negative, you should be allowed to work. Deirdre, I could not agree more. Nathan says he shouldn't be a doctor if he's not willing to protect his patients. I completely understand that argument. And if it was the right argument, I would support it. If you could show me, whoever you are, if you could show me that by getting repeatedly jabbed, that you couldn't catch or transmit COVID-19, I would agree with you. But that is simply not the case. And, you know, over the last few months, doctor after doctor uh, that I've argued with uh, cannot fight back against that statement. Another viewer anonymously says, get the jab, keep your job, easy. Well, what about freedom of personal choice? What's wrong with that? Adrian says, what a waste of money when the money spent on this could be used on medical research. Well, the real waste of money, of course, will be having to re-employ 100,000 people and probably having to pay exorbitant rates in the short term to agency workers. That'll be the real waste of money, not the money that is spent on a judicial review. Harry says... We're constantly told 
that the NHS is overwhelmed by COVID. How can that be true if the government are willing to sack 80,000 NHS workers? Look, you know, when these mandates came in, the government had complete control of all of the arguments. There simply wasn't a debate of any kind going on. And I think, actually, what Dr Steve James did very bravely when Sajid Javid visited King's was he actually began a bit of a national conversation on this. And I'm very grateful to him because whether you agree with things or disagree with things, you should be able and allowed to debate things. Now, sticking with this theme of vaccinations, we've had the double jab, which we were assured would be the end of all of our problems. We are, of course, going through a massive government campaign for us to get the booster. And about 64, 65% so far have had the booster, uh, despite a massive government campaign to persuade people to do so. One of the reasons people are a bit sceptical of the booster are the stats that say that after eight or ten weeks, two-thirds of the effectiveness of boosters has gone, uh, meaning that you need to keep on boosting. Well, Israel, a very heavily vaccinated country, is now on the fourth round of injections. And, you know, they, they one, two, three, big, big numbers of people had three jabs. The fourth jab is rolling out more slowly, but something else is happening in Israel. Probably just about the most heavily vaccinated country in the world. Let's have a look at the graph of daily COVID cases in Israel. And you can see, over the course of the last month, in this very heavily vaccinated country, daily case numbers have gone up fourfold. We can also see the number of people going into hospital in Israel. And that number, too, has risen very, very sharply over the course of the last month. In fact, by every measure, by every measure, by every measure of people being seriously ill, by every measure, actually, of deaths, which are up 80% over the course of the last seven days, of infections by every single measure, even myocarditis, which is a heart condition, which some, very few, I'm pleased to say, but some young men do get as a side effect of taking the vaccine. All of those numbers do not look great and, 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 and make me really want to question whether just endlessly jabbing people is working. Some suggest that if you keep jabbing people, actually the body's natural immune function isn't as strong as it should be. Well, I'm pleased to say that I'm joined by Professor Nadav Devodovich, director of the Public Health School at Ben-Gurion University and a member of the Israeli SAGE. Good evening, Nadav. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, just looking at the figures and trying to be as objective as I can, and I mean that, it seems the more you vaccinate people in Israel, it just makes no difference, does it, to the numbers of people contracting COVID? Uh, things are much more complex. Um, we are now with the Omicron. It's uh, behaving very, very different than the previous waves. Uh, according to our estimates, vaccination saved in Israel, uh, people about 20,000 people dying. Uh, till now, we had in Israel about uh, 8,500 deaths. 
Without uh, vaccines, this would be about 30,000 uh, 30, uh, people. Um, of course, vaccines are not enough. There are many, many other ways uh, that you need to prevent, uh, including masks, including preventing large gatherings. And of course, vaccines are not helping, uh, you know, all the consequences of unemployment and uh, mental health, long COVID and many other things. Uh, what we're having now in Israel is really a rapid uh, surge of uh, the Omicron. Uh, and uh, what we saw in the current data from Israel, that when you compare people that got the fourth dose, and we have about uh, 400,000 of them, comparing to people that got the third dose four months ago, uh, people with the fourth dose are three times more protected from severe death. Ah. The current vaccine is less protecting uh, from uh, being infected. But I think that currently the numbers that we need to take a look are not just number of infections, but the number of severe cases, and you show them. So if we, we were in the previous wave with the se similar number of infections, we would be now with uh, about four or five times more of severe cases. So we well, think in there, there may well be. Uh, no, no, there may well be this argument, and I hear it here too and, and, and from other countries, that by having the vaccine, you are less likely to get seriously ill. And that may well be true. But in terms of contracting the virus and in terms of passing the virus on, isn't it time to admit that for that purpose, it just doesn't really work? So if, uh, you know, the Delta variant, when you got uh, the third dose, like we did in Israel, or before that, the Alpha variant, when we had the uh, two doses, uh, vaccine was preventing about 90%, not 100%, but 90% of uh, transmission. Uh, with the Omicron, uh, this was reduced uh, to about uh, 20% uh, with the third dose, uh, four months uh, if the four months passed, and uh, with the fourth dose, this is up uh, to about 60%. So you're right that with Omicron, uh, preventing transmission, this is less efficient. But uh, in terms of saving lives, uh, this is very important. But I totally agree that we cannot rely in general in public health just on what we call vertical um, interventions. We need to have also horizontal interventions in terms of... Uh, reducing health inequalities, taking care of mental health issues. I think, for example, that in the past we were too uh, quick to go into solutions like, such as lockdown sometime without investing uh, properly in uh, many different uh, aspects. I myself uh, took the fourth uh, dose uh, because I'm dealing also with uh, patients. And uh, in Israel, uh, this is not compulsory. So we are offering it. The many people that want to take it, I'm against compulsion. I don't think also that the Green Pass we have in Israel is about compulsion. It's about trying to create a, a safe uh, space as much as possible. And this is why we recommended uh, to stop the Green Pass as it was uh, next week, because we think, uh, as you said, that uh, now currently vaccines are not protecting from infection as it used to be. But again, we are still uh, recommending to have the vaccine for those who are okay. interested. Thanks. I think that... Uh, so, 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 so presumably, presumably the fifth jab will be what, April or May? In terms of the long term, you're absolutely right. This is not sustainable to have every four months uh, vaccine. 
quite. Uh, I need to say that for pertussis, uh, tetanus and other polio, we do have uh, uh, many doses and uh, boosters. Uh, here we are still learning. Uh, I think that finally what will probably happen that uh, vaccines will be approved for children below five uh, and they'll be included in the regular schedule. And when we are going to enter into more of an endemic stage, I hope that uh, we'll be having the vaccine maybe once a year adapted uh, like uh, with influenza. Um, and again, vaccines are not enough. We need to uh, have uh, many other interventions. i give you an example. We facing now at schools many, many problems. We suggested already more than a year ago to ventilate better uh, classes, to reduce the number of uh, children in class. This is good, not just for COVID, it's good for the pedagogy to have uh, sometime hybrid uh, teaching. And unfortunately, both the previous government and the current one didn't invest. And this is uh, really very, very frustrating. We need to have a multi-layer approach. Vaccines are an important part, but there are many okay. other things that we need to take well, care of them. Thank you very much, Nadav Devodovic, for joining us this evening here on GB News. And thank you. Thank you. Lots of health. Keep safe. Thank you. Well, there were one or two things there that I did agree with. He didn't believe in compulsion. And that's really the, the, the big theme of tonight's show. But, you know, fourth jabs, fifth jabs, a jab every year. Is that what you want? Not sure that I'm terribly keen on that. Now, this is pretty extraordinary. And wholly, I would have thought, unnecessary. Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary, flew by private plane to Australia at a cost, this is unbelievable, of over half a million pounds to the taxpayer because she didn't want to use a scheduled business class flight. Now, normally, a business class flight to Australia uh, would be of the order of seven and a half thousand, eight thousand pounds, something like that. So, no, she got on a great big plane, one capable of taking, wait for it, 235 passengers, and it was taking Liz Truss and her staff to Australia. If you're interested, the flight generated 500 tonnes of CO2, but I suspect you're more interested that it came at a cost of half a million pounds. Now, the Foreign Office response to our question on this was, it's necessary for the Foreign Secretary to travel abroad to pursue UK interests around security, trade and technology. And she did during this visit to Australia. Travelling this way allows ministers to have private discussions on sensitive security matters and flexibility to respond to rapidly changing global events. This trip used government transport and was fully within the rules. Well, of course it was within the rules. Everything this government does, we're told, is within the rules. And this probably was within the rules. But the idea, just because you don't want to have your conversations overheard that you have to spend half a million quid is ridiculous. Why not block book the first two or three rows of business on one of these flights and you could do all of that, all of it, at about 10% of the cost? I don't think, for the Foreign Secretary, this is a particularly good look. Now, another What the Farage moment. The University of Chester's English department gave J.K. Rowling's book a trigger warning over difficult conversations about gender, race, sexuality, class and identity. Yep, J.K. Rowling's first Harry Potter book has been given a content warning by the university to students over difficult conversations 
about gender, race, sexuality, class and identity. The University of Chester's English department said this to freshers in its Approaches to Literature module by Dr Richard Leahy. It even told students they could raise concerns with him if they had any issues with the topics discussed. I mean, what is going on? Isn't the point of almost all literature that it's there and it is supposed in some ways to challenge us? I, I find this astonishing. I can't believe at times what is going on in our universities. Now, today, as you may well have seen, is Holocaust Remembrance Day, uh, and it's something as a Memorial Day uh, that is taken very seriously around the world. Uh, unfortunately, there has been a recent trend, and we've seen way too much of it in London, uh, that attacks on Jewish people have very seriously been on the increase. And indeed, this happened last night uh, to two Jewish businessmen closing up their shop in Tottenham. And here they are. <coughs> you can see those of, us, those of you watching it, them coming outside their shop. And there is a quite vicious, quite savage, unprovoked attack on them. Um, and we're going to cut the video there because that probably isn't something you want to see. Uh, the police in response said that this was an awful reminder that hate crime still exists. Well, actually, folks, uh, hate crime against Jewish people in many parts of Europe is on the increase and we need to wake up as to the reasons for it. More response from you. More response from you on should the NHS mandate be scrapped. James says, why does Nigel Farage, GB News and the other news channels ignore the damage to the NHS that unvaccinated staff cause? Prove it. What damage? What damage are you talking about? Show me the damage and I'll change my opinion. Jeannie says, if they don't want the jab, don't do the job. Fine. That's it. Let's just get rid of 100,000 people from the NHS. Great. Phil says, Dr. Steve James is an absolute hero. He could be the man to save the NHS. Well, who's to say? He's certainly going to become quite a big public figure. Jonathan says, sympathetic to a degree, but has he really not got better things to do. Well, he's about to become unemployed, so no, not really. Andrew says, about time. This was contested in court. I'm surprised there hasn't been a crowdfunding blitz on Twitter. Well, let's see where we go with all of this, because I think there's a change in public mood. I think people understand that by having these vaccines, you're less likely to get seriously ill, and if you're somebody who's medically vulnerable, it absolutely makes sense to have them. But I think it's also understood when it comes to boosters and fourth jabs and goodness knows where we go. It's also understood that by doing it, you can still catch it and still pass it on. And provided you've got a negative test, what is the problem? In a moment, I'll be joined on Talking Pines by Dr. Gavin Ashenden, former chaplain to Her Majesty the Queen. It's time for Talking Pints. Now, Dr. Gavin Ashenden was on our list of people to have for Talking Pints. Unfortunately, this is a down-the-line conversation because our other guest for today for Talking Pints was rushed to A&E, and we hope he's OK. Gavin, I'm sorry it wasn't in the studio, but cheers, and thank you for joining us. <laughs> Nigel, not at all. It's nice to be a part of the conversation on any terms at all. Good health to you and to everyone listening. Now, I understand you're drinking a bishop's finger, is that right? 
Well, I asked my wife what she thought I should drink, and she said, Bishop's Finger is the only thing you can really take off to GB well, I... News. So, so any lack of taste is, is laid at her doorstep, not mine. No, I think in, t in terms of a, a man of the cloth, I think it's a very, very appropriate choice indeed. Now, Gavin, I, I guess, in a sense, um, your early life and education was steeped in the history of Christianity in this country because, of course, you were at school in Canterbury, where St. Augustine started it all. I, I was. I, um, although, to tell you the truth, I didn't much like clergy and I didn't much like the church. I thought they were unimpressive, really. Um, and so uh, I was at school at Canterbury, but I was very affected by the cathedral. I, I, I just found it sort of uh, awesome in the American sense. God, it, to, to, to live in around that building meant you, made you ask questions. Uh, all the time. And I decided the way I deal with this is I'd live one year as an atheist and the other year as a Christian through through my school career. And I mean, I remember the great thing about being an atheist was I didn't have to share my bootleg liquor with anybody because atheists <laughs> don't have to share. And, and, and when, I, when I was a Christian, I felt obliged to, to open my bottom drawer and share my bootleg liquor. Uh, so that was morally and ethically quite hard. But I left school on, uh, for an atheist patch and uh, so I was still open-minded, really, about the whole business of God and religion. Yeah, I mean, Canterbury Cathedral, absolutely magnificent, and, you know, you can go and see the Thomas Beckett Shrine and all the rest of it. And now, of course, for people to go and visit the HQ of the Church of England, they're charged some extraordinary sum of money on the door. Is that right to make Canterbury Cathedral no. so inaccessible? No, it's absolutely terrible. The, the, the cathedrals are, I mean, they're a gift, of course. They're, they're, they're part of our heritage. They're very expensive to keep up. Um, and I must say, although it's complicated, I rather like the French system, whereby the states say, uh, I mean, their motivation wasn't very pure, but the outcome is good. The states say these are far too important to leave to, to, the, to widows and minorities. We'll, we'll keep them up. But it's quite wrong because the, ultimately... Uh, church buildings are not cultural artifacts. They're places where people encounter God or try to encounter God. Yeah. And you can't, you can't simply say, well, you can come in if you've got 5, 10, 15 or 20 quid, but otherwise, you know, you, it's not for you. There, there should be, there needs to be another way. Um, it's not, it, how you get there from here, I don't know, but um, it's, it sends up the wrong signals and it's entirely the wrong way of doing no, it. No, I agree. I agree. I think it's all wrong. Now, after your atheist phase, you decided actually this was your future and you, you were ordained, I noticed, by Mervyn Stockwood, who was, of course... <laughs> yes. who, of course who, by the way, and, and, and you, you don't know this, but I was actually confirmed by Mervyn Stockwood. Uh, and, of course, he was a, a really radical left-wing bishop, wasn't he? He was. He was extraordinary. Um, I, I mean, I, I went to, to, to Bristol to do law. My father was a lawyer. My uncles were lawyers. And, um, uh, and I wanted to be a lawyer. And I, I, I got rather fed up uh, when I had this pressing sense that I needed to be a clergyman. Because as I say, I, I, you know, I, I spent the whole of my life reading Henry Cecil books about, about, about barristers taking risks for, for justice. Um, but I had this, I had this profound sense I had to become a clergyman. And I also thought that, actually, you know, along with Shakespeare's "Kill All the Lawyers," lawyers also don't have the best of reputations. But I knew there was a lot wrong with society, and one of the things I, uh, I, I, I came to not realise, but 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 one of these emerging perceptions inside me was that if you wanted to change society, you needed to change people one by one. You, there had to be a transformation of the heart. And one of the things that Christianity commended itself to me over particularly was 
that it had produced the most radical transformation program through history. And whether you talk about St. Francis of Assisi or William Wilberforce or Martin Luther King Jr. or Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who became a huge hero for me, um, that's where the really impressive people were. And so one of the ways I, I consoled myself about being an Anglican clergyman was that if you got it right, you could really do an enormous amount of good to the way in which people live their lives. Well, you certainly worked your way up through the church pretty effectively, you know, from Paris priest to the synod. And then how on earth do you become appointed as chaplain to the Queen? How does that happen? <laughs> well, do you want to know the truth? <laughs> Please. Well, the, the truth was that, that uh, I kept on being bumped off the preferment list. A number of dioceses asked me, uh, wanted my name at least on, in, in the pool. Uh, because I used to go around as a dance as a missioner and cheer people up and, uh, and, and, and enough people liked me to say, well, we might fancy him as our bishop. But I had made some enemies in the church. I'm not entirely sure why, but I think, I think the culture wars that we're already fully engaged in were beginning then. And I think the people who ran the Church of England uh, thought that I might not be on their side. And so one day, Paul Rowan Williams phoned up the Queen personally, I'm told, and say, we've got to give Gavin something. Can, can we give him a consolation prize? Can we, can we put him on, you know, make him a member of the Royal Ecclesiastical Household? Now, his secretary told me that, so I think it's true. Um, and, uh, and so that's, that's how I ended up as part of the Royal Ecclesiastical Household. So certainly I had, I had bishops say to me, oh, we, want, we also want to use our cathedral dean, but the establishment <laughs> told us we couldn't have you. So, so uh, I mean, that's, for me, I was saved from a great deal of responsibility uh, and, and endlessly trying to raise money. But um, that's how it happened. And it must have been just the most extraordinary privilege. I mean, not just because she's the Queen, but because she is a woman of profound faith, isn't she? It was a huge privilege, and not only because of who she is, but actually the Royal Ecclesiastical, Ecclesiastical Household uh, as a as a sort of department of the monarchy it is extremely interesting. It goes back to the Battle of Agincourt. What, what we know about it is, uh, we, we, we first what we know about Agincourt was written by a blogging royal chaplain who sat on the baggage train before it was captured by the French and and, and wrote up the battle. But um, there's been this this body. I mean, the, one of the things that doesn't really get told is there are 36 royal chaplains at any one time. The problem is that I've been the most garrulous. The, other, the, others have been, the others have been quiet and dignified and well-behaved. Uh, and I've, I think I've, I mean, it became clear to me after a while that I was bending the terms of the implicit terms. They weren't ever made explicit. I was bending the implicit terms by becoming, by speaking out in the public place about things that mattered. And in the end, it became clear, per perfectly rightly, that it, I, I couldn't, I couldn't associate the Queen with the cultural and spiritual views that I had personally, and that I would either have to be quiet or resign. I mean, it was put to me in the most delicate and beautiful of ways, but that was what it came to. And, and at the time, I thought the direction that our society was taking was, was so critical um, that I absolutely wouldn't be quiet. Apart from anything else, one of the things that cancel culture has been doing for quite a while is trying to shut Christians up take away the voice of the church, to, si to silence the Gospels. I mean, the, the, the Gospels are now subversive literature. You can't have them in most places. And so I saw that coming and decided that my, my duty to Christ, my duty to his church meant that I absolutely couldn't speak up. And if, it meant, you know, if that meant stopping going to garden parties and preaching at St. James's Palace, well, that was a price I was very willing to pay. Well, I mean, one thing, Gavin, that we just, I mean, absolutely could never accuse you of, 
um, is being quiet uh, because, you know, you're on, <laughs> you're on Fox News in America and you're on Sky News Australia and you're here with us on GB News and goodness knows uh, wherever else you appear. But all those years, all those years that you were in the Church of England, the established church in this country, but in the end you felt you simply couldn't continue and uh, you've gone off and joined the Catholic Church. That must have been a very big moment. And I want to ask you what, what precipitated it. Was it one big thing? Was it a series of things? No, it was a series of things. I mean, the fact was the Church of England was my home. Uh, mm. You know, from the, my, my father was, a, was an atheist as a teenager and uh, he was orphaned. His father got, got killed in the 1930s. Um, and there was an insurance policy that his employers had. And so he was sent to a Baptist public school uh, and became a Christian when he was there. And then he became an Anglican. And, and I, I, I sung in a, in a church choir in South London. I went to Canterbury. I was ordained in the church. It was my life, culturally speaking. But, what, but they changed it under our feet. <laughs> so, um, and, and, and as society changed, the Church of England as a state church had this very difficult decision to make. When society goes off in a way that's different to Christianity, a state church has to either go with it and abandon its own integrity, or it has to call society back. And it became crystal clear to me <laughs> that since the forces that were moving society were taking us in a, uh, well, essentially in a totalitarian direction, taking away our freedom of speech, taking away our freedom of thought. Uh, I spent 25 years at a very progressive university. So I got a kind of advanced whiff of it, really, and I saw what was coming and realized what was at stake. And so as the Church of England began to give in to yeah. this, to essentially to political correctness, uh, I spoke out against it, I agitated against it, I argued against it. Um, but but in the end, when they began to change the nature of the faith to make it conform to what we might call political correctness, uh, that was the point when I said, "Well, not not in my name. You don't. I don't. I can't go that oh, way." Well, and you know, the point came when I'd stop. You're not uh, alone in that, and indeed, a previous guest on Talking Pints, Bishop Michael Nazarali, former Bishop of Rochester, um, and he's made that same journey that you've made, um, but without getting too involved in you know the established church, the Catholic Church history. More broadly, in terms of society, in terms of the Christian underpinning, in terms of principles of pretty much everything that we've ever stood for, uh, and given that we now have a quite rapidly growing number of people of Muslim faith uh, living within the United Kingdom, as you look ahead, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, whatever it may be, can those two faiths, come to a happy accommodation? So I think one of the ways of describing this is almost as if you had a wrestling ring. And, and, and in the wrestling ring, you have three historic figures. And they're Jesus, Mohammed, and Marx. And you might say that the, 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 the Marx, the Mar, you know, Marx is on the far left and the Islam is on the far right. I mean, that already becomes controversial. Uh, and, 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 and Jesus is non-politically aligned, as he was always non-politically aligned. But the fact is, that these are the three major influences on our culture. And what people don't understand or they won't admit to is they're not compatible with each other. And one of the ways I discovered that was I, I used to smuggle Bibles into the Soviet Union in the 1980s. I got caught by the KGB. I got interrogated by them. They were quite rough. 
They threatened to send me to prison camp for 20 years and give me one year off for every family I betrayed. Uh, I had no illusions about what Marxism did. Uh, it, it, the, the death toll amongst Christians and, and ordinary Russians was, was between 40 and 60 million. In, in Marxism in China killed over 90 million. So I knew what the, what the problem with the left was. If you're hist- I taught Islam at the university I was at. I was reason- and one of the reasons that I found myself invited onto news programs was that I, I gave factual answers to factual questions. My poor daughter used to get up at about six o'clock and say, oh, daddy, you're in the Daily Mail again. Would you please stop it? What you- <laughs> and I would say, well, they ask me questions and they're questions of fact. And, you know, when I answer with fact, they, I, I you know, because other people won't tell the facts. So, the, you know, the, unfortunately, Islam and Christianity are both, they both have very serious designs on everybody's soul. Uh, and they're both completely uncompromising. They're uncompromising in different ways, but they're not compatible. They're compatible in the sense that we can live side by side. Right. But... Um, I mean, you don't. You don't need me to re-rehearse the history of it. So no, no, no. no. I, mean, I mean, Gavin, 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 Gavin. As long as we can live peacefully side by side and coexist, that seems to me to be the, to be the most important thing. Looking ahead. Well, okay. You'll forgive me for saying that I think Christians are good at that. I mean, Christians annoy people by saying, "Would you like to be reconciled with God, and would you like to know Jesus better?" It's a wonderful question because when people are do encounter Christ, their lives are transformed. And frankly, I'm pa- I'm passionate about that. Why wouldn't I be? I'm a Christian, and I understand entirely that my Muslim friends say, "Actually, we prefer Muhammad," and we have some really quite passionate arguments about about the virtues of the two. Mm. And there are some very important virtues in Islam. Islam has got some highly commendable bits to it. But as a Christian, uh, I find Christianity more compellingly well, attractive, as Gavin, I'm entitled to. So now we're, we're in a race to try and persuade our neighbours which of the two is more attractive. But there are implications. There are political and cultural implications. And if you want to know what they are, you check out what a Muslim country looks like, where they've had practice Islam for 500 years, and check out what a Christian country looks like. And you'll see they involve two well, entirely that- different sets of values. Gavin, on that very profound point, can I just thank you very much for stepping in at the last minute? I'd much rather have had you in the studio, and I'd much rather we had an hour or two to have this conversation, because we've barely begun it. But Gavin Ashenden, thank you very much indeed for joining me here on Talking Pints at GB News. Andrew, thank you for having me. We've got a couple of minutes left. It is, of course, time for Barrage the Farage. And one person asks me, what would you do if you became prime minister? Faint with shock, I would have thought. Um, I would I tell you what, uh, if that was ever to happen, which it won't under our, uh, under our electoral system, I can assure you. Uh, but if ever I did, uh, I just think what we've learned, what we've learned is we're being very badly governed. There needs a complete radical rethink about the way the whole system of government in this country works, because in many cases, it doesn't seem to. Dave asks, do you agree, Nigel, that Brexiteers should back each other up? Well, I think the Brexiteer argument's over, it's done. Um, I mean, I know Michael Heseltine, that old dinosaur, has been allowed out of the Natural History Museum this week, saying we should rejoin. It isn't going to happen. Mick asks, do you think 
the national insurance rise will be cancelled. One thing about this government, they are brilliant at U-turning. They've U-turned at least a dozen times on major policies. I suspect the pressure that Boris Johnson is under. He will U-turn on the 5% VAT on fuel bills. He may well U-turn on this too. Adrian asks, what do you think of the extra delays lorries are suffering at Dover due to the new goods movement vehicle system? We're living in a digital age. It will all be digitised and very shortly lorries going through the Channel Tunnel and VAR ferries will be easier than it's ever, ever been before. Well, I am out of time and I'm going to be back with you next Monday. We'll see what the agenda is then. 